Uh, well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John uh, chapter 11. John chapter 11, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John 11, uh, verse 1. And my goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through 44. There might be a detail or two that we leave um, untouched, but we'll uh, hopefully gather some of those things up next week as we pick up in verse 45 of John 11. But the title of the message is uh, Jesus Handles the Death of a Loved One. Jesus Handles the Death of a Loved One. On the evening of September the 14th, 2017, my wife and I received a phone call informing us that her dad was dying and had just hours to live. I never saw my wife weep the way that she wept uh, in those moments after receiving that phone call. Her pain was not simply that her dad was dying, but that she was 2,000 miles away from him while he was breathing his last breaths in Indiana. Within 30 minutes of that initial phone call, we were informed that her dad had passed away. And at nine o'clock the following morning, Donna and I were lifting off the runway at LAX on our way to Indiana to be with Donna's family in Indiana. Uh, No one needed to tell us to come. It was automatic. Uh, Our life had stopped and everything in our life took a back seat to being with our family uh, to grieve uh, her dad's passing. Some of you know what it is like to experience that because it has happened to you. While we were in Indiana, almost the entire family and many friends were gathered uh, at the memorial service. Memories were revisited. Places in our hearts got touched that hadn't been touched in years. Most importantly, we all rejoiced that her dad was a born-again believer in Jesus and that he was with the Lord in heaven and that he would be raised on the last day, the day of resurrection. And we had this comfort because Jesus himself was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. And we also had this comfort uh, because of some promises that Jesus makes in our passage uh, this morning. Nonetheless, after the graveside service had been conducted for Donna's dad, uh, we stood together and we watched his casket being hoisted by a scissor lift and then rolled into a mausoleum chamber. Donna's mom was standing next to us while we watched that happen, and she uh, felt unsettled uh, at the thought of her husband being cooped up in a dark compartment until the day of resurrection. But then she said out loud to all of us, he always did like caves, so he'll be okay. And with that thought, we turned and walked to our cars and drove away, leaving Donna's dad behind. 
And a little less than three years later, the body of Donna's mom was placed in that same dark chamber right next to her husband. Death cuts like an unforgiving knife through human history and there is no family that survives the cut. It disassembles everything and it separates us from our loved ones. Some of you have experienced the loss of a parent or a spouse. Some of you have experienced the death of a child, perhaps even before that child was born. Some of you have lost siblings or dear friends to death. Some of you right now are experiencing the pain of a loved one that is in the throes of death. Some of you are right now dealing with a diagnosis that is putting you closer to death's door than you once thought. The truth is that every one of us in this room will one day breathe our last and eventually die and be separated from those that we love. And everyone we love will eventually breathe their last and die and be separated from us as well. Death is a stubborn reality that comes to us all. And because of this, any would-be Messiah who would present himself as our savior must be able to deal with death, amen? In fact, he must be able to manhandle death. And if he can't, then in my opinion, he is not a person worthy of the title Savior. In our passage today, we're gonna see how Jesus handles death when death comes to a family that he deeply loves And what we find here in our passage today is a savior that is worth believing in, a savior who is both tender and sympathetic and fiercely powerful in the way that he handles the death of a loved one. And our text today just gives us our savior on full display in a way that just sends comfort to us in every direction The way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we're going to observe five actions of Jesus in handling the death of a loved one. Five actions of Jesus in handling the death of a loved one. And the first of these actions, let's say it this way, is he allows his loved one to experience death. He allows his loved one to experience death. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. The text says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And we'll read about that incident in the next chapter. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, Behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice that there is no explicit request here from these sisters to do anything, but Jesus understands these sisters enough to know that a request is implied, right? 
And the request is for Jesus to hurry to Bethany and to rescue Lazarus from the death that will come upon him unless Jesus intervenes. If you read the final verses of chapter 10, you learn that Jesus is right now in the region just beyond the Jordan, about a day's journey away. So how does Jesus respond to this news from Martha and Mary? Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In other words, Jesus is saying that when this story is finished, the ultimate outcome of this sickness will not be death, but life and glory for God the Father and God the Son. So observe what happens next. And I'm going to let you tell me if the wording of verses 5 and 6 goes the way that you would expect it to go. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Is that what you would have expected Jesus to do, given his love for this family. Not at all. According to verse 6, it was evidently because Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha that he delayed heading toward Bethany for two days. Apparently, in the mind of Jesus, the more loving thing for him to do was to delay his trip to Bethany by two days. And so we read that and we're like, what is going on here? Well, what's going on is the fact that Mary and Martha are hoping for Jesus to come and do a miracle of healing. But Jesus is wanting to do something greater than a miracle of healing. He wants to raise Lazarus from the dead and bring greater glory to himself and to his father. Little do Mary and Martha know that in a few days, they will be the recipients of the most astounding miracle of Jesus' entire public ministry. Mary and Martha wanted something great. What they were about to receive was something even greater. And that greater thing would have never happened if Jesus had not delayed coming to them. Does that make sense? So can we learn something from this? I think so. Many times uh, we have an idea of what we want God to do and when we want him to do it. And we've got it all figured out. If God would just cooperate with our plans. We think that God is supposed to show up right now, today, this minute, and do the thing that we want him to do, but... He delays, and he delays because he loves us. He delays because he intends to do something greater than the thing we are hoping for, something that will bring even greater blessing to us and greater glory to God. And that's the way it will be here in John 11. 
So after staying for two extra days where he was, Jesus then decides to go to Bethany. So look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again, which is where Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And we saw this back in chapter 10 when Jesus was just recently in Jerusalem. So they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus' point here is that the time for him to minister is drawing to a close and the time for his disciples to minister is limited as well. If they, the disciples, take the opportunity to walk in the day of Christ's light, they won't stumble. But anyone who tries to walk in a way that is not enlightened by the light of Christ, then they will stumble spiritually, some of them to their spiritual ruin, not simply because the light of Christ is not shining on their path, but also because the light of Christ is not in them. Ultimately, Jesus is saying here, I'm in no danger from the Judeans right now. The danger I'm worried about is the danger of passing up an opportunity to do what my father has called me to do. For the real danger is for those who are walking in darkness, and I'm going to go shine some light. Observe what the text says in verse 11 and following. This he said... And after that, he said to them, our friend has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They really don't want to go to Judea right now. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas really thinks that Jesus is going to get himself killed on this trip and he's ready to die with Jesus. And we're going to see next Sunday how well-founded Thomas's concerns really were. But as for Jesus, Jesus didn't view Lazarus's dying as posing any kind of problem for him. When he initially heard the news that Lazarus was sick, Jesus didn't think, man, I'd better hurry and get back to Bethany before Lazarus dies. I have healing powers over sickness, but if he dies on me, then he'll be beyond the reach of my powers. He did not think that. And so he's not afraid to let Lazarus die or to let him even be dead for a few days. Jesus is in total control here, and death evidently poses no problem 
for Jesus, raising Lazarus from the dead is as easy for Jesus as waking someone from sleep. Unless the person you're waking is a teenager, which requires its own kind of miracle. In fact, Jesus says in verse 15 that he is glad for the disciples' sake that he was not there to prevent Lazarus' death because it sets the stage for them to get to see a display of Jesus' power that's going, going to only serve to enrich their faith in Jesus. And the fact that Jesus can speak so confidently right now in this situation speaks volumes about his self-awareness of his power over death, which is why he had no problem delaying and allowing Lazarus to die before his arrival. But that's not all that Jesus does when death comes to a family that he loves. This brings us to the second action of Jesus in handling the death of a loved one. Number two, he claims to be the resurrection and life for those who believe in him. He claims to be the resurrection and the life for those who believe in him. Observe what happens beginning in verse 17. So when Jesus came, in other words, when he came to Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews, and when you see the Jews in the Gospel of John, that's often a reference to the Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How's that for a greeting? She then says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What she's saying is, Jesus, I still believe in you. I'm confused and I'm disappointed in my faith, but I still believe in you. And I believe that God stands ready to do anything that you might ask him to do. Jesus responds in verse 23. The text says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And in saying this, Jesus is essentially promising that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead very shortly through a wonderful miracle that Jesus is going to perform. But Martha doesn't seem to yet understand Jesus in this way. Observe her response in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What she knows to be true and confesses here to be true is Indeed true, all those who believe in Jesus will be bodily raised from the dead in the last day. And to her credit, Martha believes this, but she seems to be missing in the moment the more immediate promise contained in Jesus' words. Jesus doesn't press the point for now, but he does direct Martha's attention to some wonderful truths about himself and 
about those who believe in him. Observe what he says about himself in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And calling himself the resurrection and the life, Jesus is not merely saying that he raises people to life, although he does that, but he's saying that resurrection and life comprise his very identity and are integral to his reputation. What Jesus is saying here is an assurance that when all is said and done, everyone is going to look at Jesus and see that resurrection and life comprise the essence of who he is. And being the resurrection and the life, Jesus is basically saying here to Martha, he who believes in me may experience physical death in the here and now, but they will live on the other side of death such that one can say, that those who believe in me will never die in an unrecoverable way. In the end, everyone who believes in me will live forever. And eternal life will be their ultimate experience. Jesus then asked Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And Jesus looks at you this morning and says, do you believe this? Do you believe these truths and these promises from Jesus? Jesus is speaking to you this morning and he makes this promise. If you believe in me, you will be triumphant over death and you will live forever. And I can make that promise come true because I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe Jesus when he speaks this way? Or do you believe the naysayers of this world who speak a different message. Just a couple of weeks ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who I'm not used to quoting in my sermons, um, was being interviewed and he referred back to a time when he was asked by Howard Stern about the afterlife. Howard Stern had asked him this question, what happens to us when we die? Wouldn't you like to ask Arnold that question? And in reply, Arnold said, and I quote, nothing, you're six feet under, and anyone who tells you something else is a liar. He goes on to say, we don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. Unquote. So let's see. Jesus says one thing and Arnold says another. Who should we believe? <laughs> Thankfully, Martha would side with Jesus over Arnold. 
Observe her response in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. In other words, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe that the one who believes in you will live forever, even if he dies. And then she says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This is one of the greatest confessions of faith in all of the Bible. And this remarkable confession comes from the lips of a woman. There's a lot that Martha doesn't know right now, but she knows who Jesus is. And in her moment of confusion and grief, she confesses three things that she knows to be true about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah Number two, Jesus is the very son of God, the one who uniquely has God as his father and who is destined to rule as king. And number three, Jesus is the one who has come from heaven into this broken world to be our savior. The promised Messiah. Keep in mind that Martha is not on some mountaintop of joy as she speaks this confession of faith. She's in the valley of disappointment and tears, shaken by the death of her brother. Yet in her moment of grief, in her moment of loss, Martha is uttering this confession of faith. And in the process, she shows us her true measure as a woman. You can tell the true measure of a person by what they confess to be true when they are in their moments of deepest confusion and grief. And you can definitely tell the true measure of Jesus Christ by listening to what his followers say about him, even in their brokenness and in their moments of heartache. This confession coming from Martha, it, it means more hearing her say these words in this moment than if we were to hear her say these same words after Lazarus is raised, right? Well, as soon as Martha utters this confession of faith, observe what she does in verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And this action of Martha serves to bring about the setting for the third action of Jesus in handling the death of a precious loved one. Number three, he weeps. He weeps with his loved ones who are touched by death. He weeps with his loved ones who are touched by death. Observe what happens beginning in verse 29. And when she, Mary, heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came 
where Jesus was, she saw him, look at this, and fell at his feet, the posture of worship, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Evidently, Mary is also disappointed that Jesus did not arrive sooner, and she's willing to voice her lament to Jesus while bowing at his feet in worship, voicing a lament that Jesus never rebukes her for. Read through the Psalms and observe the places where the psalm writers voice their complaints, their laments to God. Sometimes we honor God by trusting him enough to not complain. But other times we honor God by bringing our complaint to him and by trusting him even with our complaints. God is a big God who can handle our laments. And the Psalms teach us that he actually views such laments as worship. And just like the psalm writers in the Old Testament, Mary is entrusting her lament to Jesus, bowed at his feet in worship and lamenting to him. And rather than Jesus rebuking her, observe what happens next. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? They cannot imagine why Jesus, if he truly had the power to heal and to prevent his dear friend's death, why would he allow something like this to happen to him that would reduce himself to tears? On this occasion, most all of us in this room are very familiar with this story. But if we were reading this story for the first time, this moment would take us by surprise. The flow of the narrative thus far has led us to expect that when Jesus arrives in Bethany, there would be a raw demonstration of Jesus' power over death, right? So we are surprised at the vulnerable turn that this story takes in verse 35. In verse 35, John tells us that Jesus wept. And those are the only two words in this verse, which makes this the shortest verse in the Bible, the easiest one to memorize, but it's one of the deepest verses you'll ever find in the Bible. The word translated wept is the verb form of the Greek word for tears. So the word means to shed tears, which means that Jesus is joining Mary and Martha 
and the others and shedding tears over the death of Lazarus, which still is a stunning thing for us to observe. It's stunning because Jesus knows that he's going to be raising Lazarus from the dead in a matter of minutes, right? He knows that within the hour, everyone who is now weeping will be out of their minds with joy. So knowing this, Jesus could have remained emotionally detached from the grief that was going on around him, but he does not let himself be detached from that grief. He lingers in the moment and he weeps with everyone as they weep before he then raises Lazarus from the dead. Which means that by the end of this whole story, Jesus will have given to everyone present two precious gifts. Gift number one, a resurrected Lazarus. And gift number two, the unforgettable experience of the Messiah weeping with them as they were weeping before the miracle was performed. I'm guessing that these people never wept again for the rest of their lives without being comforted in the knowledge of Christ's sympathetic union with them in their grief. Look again at verse 33, which tells us that Jesus saw, you might want to underline that word saw, he saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. And then in verse 35, Jesus wept. He saw their weeping, and then he wept with them. This teaches us that Jesus sees us when we weep, and he weeps with us in our weeping. If you cried this week for any reason at all, Jesus saw you weeping, even if no one else did. And he wept with you. And when Jesus sees a Christian weeping, he does not say, what are you weeping for? Soon you will be in heaven and you'll have nothing to weep over. Jesus doesn't do that to us. Even if Jesus knows that your deep sorrow will be lifted completely tomorrow morning, he will weep with you today. That's the kind of savior he is. As our sympathetic high priest, he enters our sorrows and griefs and he weeps with us as we experience the pains of life in a broken world, making himself vulnerable to our griefs, even though he knows that there's going to be joy in the morning. And we see that here in this passage. We're reminded of this truth and we're asking, what is not to love about a Savior like this? And by the way, this is why we're told in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep. Because when we do so, we put on display the sympathetic heart of Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with us in our sorrows and our griefs and our weaknesses. And looking back here at John 11, we observe that Jesus is weeping with them, identifying, entering into their sorrows and weeping with them. But we also, as we read this passage, we observe that 
Jesus feels more than simply grief when his loved ones are touched by death. And this brings us to the next truth or the next action of Jesus in responding to the death of a loved one. Let's word it this way. Number four, he groans with indignation against death. He groans with indignation against death. Observe again what happens starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Now go to verse 38. The text says, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. The word that is translated troubled in verse 33 literally means that Jesus was shaking. Some writers say that this could be translated, he shook himself like someone would shake themselves with rage or with deep emotion. In verse 33, and then again in verse 38, we're told that Jesus was deeply moved. D.A. Carson, the commentator, tells us that when the Greek word that is translated deeply moved here is used in ancient times regarding horses, it refers to the snorting of horses. And when it refers to the actions of human beings, Carson says it suggests anger, outrage, or emotional indignation. So evidently, Jesus isn't just grieving, he's angry, which raises the question, what is he so angry at? And I would agree with those commentators who suggest that Jesus is angry at death and at Satan and at sin, which has plunged the human race into death. Benjamin Warfield says it this way, and I quote, It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath here, and behind death, the one who has the power of death. Tears of sympathy may fill Jesus' eyes, but his soul is held by rage, unquote. To get the full import of this Greek word translated deeply, Moved, we should understand that this word conveys the idea of feeling anger to such an extent that you make it audible somehow, be it with a groan or a sigh or even a roar. In fact, Timothy Keller, in his commentary on this passage, joins others in taking this word to mean that Jesus is, quote, bellowing with rage, unquote. And Keller goes on to say, Jesus is raging against death. He is looking squarely at our greatest nightmare, the loss of life, the loss of loved ones and of love. And he is incensed. He is mad at evil and suffering. I'm glad we have a savior who feels such rage against the sin and the death that hurts us, aren't you? 
Such rage is a true indication of the depth of his love for us. It assures us that Jesus will not be satisfied until he has destroyed death. And it also informs us of what our perspective should be regarding death. And that is, it is an enemy that must be destroyed. Speaking to the Stanford graduating class of 2005, Steve Jobs in his commencement address spoke at length about the topic of death. And among the things he said are these words, and I quote, death is very likely the single best invention of life, unquote. Jesus would never put such a positive spin on death. Jesus would tell us that death is most unnatural to the human condition. It is an ugly intrusion. Death came into the world through Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, and through them death passed to all people, including us. So Jesus would never tell people to make peace with death. Jesus is the sworn enemy of death, and he will not be content until death is destroyed. So here in John 11, death is lurking around the tomb of Lazarus, about to be confronted by Jesus. And one look at Jesus' face would tell death the awful truth that this confrontation is not going to go well for death. If looks could kill, then the look that Jesus is giving death in this moment would kill death. In fact, I think we can say written all over the countenance of Jesus in this moment is the ultimate fate awaiting death. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the last enemy to be destroyed is death and that death will one day be swallowed up in victory. And that future outcome right now is written all over the countenance of Jesus in this moment. So verse 38 tells us that Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus. As John Calvin puts it, he advances to the tomb as a champion prepares for conflict. Our great enemy, death, which we fear so much, stands at the tomb to guard over his prey. And Jesus approaches the tomb to take on mighty death. Who will win? Well, this brings us to the final action of Jesus as he handles the death of his loved one. Number five, he raises his loved one to life. He raises his loved one to life. Observe what happens starting in verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus is warning her that this is not a time for unbelief, but for faith. What Jesus is about to do requires her faith 
and the faith of her sister Mary. For it is probably Martha who is the one who is to grant permission to even remove the stone. So she needs to believe and give permission for the stone to be removed. Thankfully, it seems that Martha receives Jesus' challenge and gives her approval for the men to remove the stone. Look at verse 41 and following. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. After breathing a prayer, Jesus simply speaks a command to a man who had been dead for four days. And observe what happens in verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, the people around, including Mary and Martha, unbind him and let him go. And with that, Jesus accomplishes the most astounding miracle of his earthly ministry with a simple command. Now, granted, I'm sure Lazarus was walking kind of awkwardly in the moment as he came out of the tomb with all the wrappings around his hands and his feet. But to the utter astonishment of everyone watching, Lazarus waddled forth from the grave. And Jesus is the one who accomplished that. But then notice he leaves it to the others to unbind Lazarus from his grave clothes. Just like he raises us from the dead spiritually, but then leaves it to us to help each other get the old grave clothes off, right? To help each other to walk in life and freedom that he has saved us to. There were other occasions when Jesus raised someone from the dead earlier in his ministry, but John 11 provides us with the description of the only occasion in which Jesus raised someone from the dead after they had actually been buried and been buried four days at that after decomposition had actually begun. In his contest with death here, Jesus spotted death four days And he still triumphed with a simple command. Speaking personally, my heart resonates with the words that Martha speaks to Jesus in verse 39. Jesus says, remove the stone. And Martha, it seems, thinks that Jesus doesn't really understand what he's getting himself into She's afraid to let the stone be removed and basically says, Jesus, my brother's been dead for four days now. By by this time, there will be a stench. Her point is to say, Jesus, I'm not sure you understand how hopeless this situation really is. Lazarus stinks now. Martha is trying to protect Jesus from getting in over his head in this situation. 
She's afraid that he might embarrass himself by trying to tackle a miracle of this magnitude. And imagine that you're reading this story and that Martha says these words to Jesus. And then imagine Jesus said, oh, I didn't realize he had been dead for four days. And he stinks. Wow. Okay, yeah, keep the stone in place. Maybe this is too much for me to handle. Who did I think I was anyway? I'm so glad the story doesn't end this way. And I'm equally glad my own story with Jesus doesn't end there either. No one is ever too far gone for Jesus. And that means you and me. Sometimes I have to confess, I I tend to think that Jesus got in over his head when he chose to save me. Sometimes when he commands that a stone be removed from a part of my life, I'm afraid for that stone to be removed. I'm afraid that the stench and the decay will prove too much for Jesus. And maybe you worry about that kind of thing as well. Maybe you think, Sometimes that you are too far gone for Jesus. Maybe you think that there is some stench in your life that will just be too much for Jesus. Maybe you think that there is some area in your life that is too much for Jesus to handle. And it's just best that we keep the stone in place over that area of life. But this story tells you that none of that is true. If a man who had been dead for four days was not too far gone for Jesus, then neither are you. And neither is any area of your life. Because Jesus has no problem bringing life where there is death and decay. Do you believe this? In fact, if you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus, the Bible teaches that you are, in fact, spiritually dead in your sins and that you stand in need of a resurrection. And Jesus is the only one who can accomplish that feat. This room is actually full of people who were once spiritually dead, who were once beyond all hope, whom Jesus raised to life with a single command and brought us into relationship with himself and My prayer this morning is that you would allow Jesus to perform that same miracle in your life. Just as he did for Lazarus. If you hear his voice calling to you today, don't harden your heart against him. Repent of your sins and repent of your own righteousness and believe in Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the one who's calling to you. And then rise from your tomb and come forth and follow him. You know, as impressive as this story is in John 11, we're going to see next week how it brings us right up to the very threshold of the greater story of Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection from the tomb three days later. 
which is probably about a month or so away from where we are right now in John 11. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan hurled everything at Jesus until there was nothing left to throw at him. And Jesus, yes, succumbed to death. And on the third day after being buried, he took up his life again by an act of his own authority. And this is why we put our trust in Jesus as the one who has the power to make all things right ultimately in all of our lives. He is the one who can fix all that is broken and make us right again. He is a sovereign of unbridled power, yet he is also a sovereign who is immensely sympathetic with us in our weakness and suffering and brokenness. And he is a sovereign who possesses a passionate rage against the sin and the death that works against us because he loves us so much. And by the way, he doesn't just rage helplessly like sometimes we do. He doesn't just rage helplessly against death. He has actually conquered death and sealed its doom. And what more do you want in a savior than this? This is why we here at Cornerstone believe in Jesus. This is why we value his words over the opinions of Arnold and Steve Jobs and others who have a contrary opinion. Speaking of contrary opinions before his death in 2018, the famed scientist Stephen Hawking shared his beliefs about death and the afterlife. And among the things he said was this, and I quote, he says, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, unquote. Actually, Jesus would say that people who talk like Stephen Hawking talks here are people who are afraid of the light. Our response to Hawking's statement would be to say that belief in the afterlife did not originate from people who are afraid of the dark. It came to us from Jesus Christ, who's not afraid of the dark at all. He took on death and prevailed over it with a simple command in our passage today. And in a matter of weeks from this moment in John 11, Jesus will actually allow himself to die and then rise to life again. Jesus is not afraid of anything. And this is why we trust Jesus' words over the words of Stephen Hawking. This is why my wife's family could grieve her father's passing, yet at the same time have the joy of knowing that Jesus will raise her father up in the last day. This is why you can know the same regarding your believing loved ones who have passed and why you can know the same for yourself if you have believed in Jesus. 
This is why we as Christians do not fear death. Because we know that resurrection and life will ultimately have the final word. And that final word is none other than Jesus himself. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, it's, it's hard to imagine our Bibles containing all that it contains, but not containing this story. Because it reveals so much about you, Lord Jesus. That brings us so much comfort. We have seen you in the Gospel of John heal a man who had been lame for decades. A man who had been blind from birth. And now we see you raising someone from the dead who had been dead for four days. We say to you this morning, it is you that we believe in. Were we to turn away from you, where would we go? Who would we believe in that could even begin to compare with your unrivaled power as well as your sweet sympathy as you sympathize with us so graciously in our weakness and in our sorrows. You are the perfect combination of power and sympathy and grace and truth. And we confess to you this morning that it is in you that we believe. May we get such a glimpse of the beauty and the power and the gravitas of your person as you take on death in this passage that that it would forever ruin us from any other idols that we would ever be inclined to bow before. Nothing and no one can compare to you. You are the only Lord that will never let us down and who always stands ready to love us and forgive us when we let you down. All that we need, we find in you, Lord Jesus. And may what we've covered today uh, bring immense comfort to those in our congregation, Lord, who are hurting as they, in one way or another, find themselves in the valley of the shadow of death. May these thoughts be fresh in their minds for others who may find themselves in that valley in the coming days and that your person, your character, and your work and your words in this text would serve to bring immense comfort and perspective and help us as a congregation, Lord, to 
declare the good news to the world about a Savior such as you are. We do not well to be silent about such an amazing Savior. So help us to believe in you and to walk with you, to be loved by you, and then to tell others about you that they might come to know the blessing of having a relationship with you, Lord Jesus. We ask all of these things, dear Lord, in your mighty name. And all God's people said,